Our God and Father, oh Lord, we praise you and we glorify you and we lift up your name this morning. And Father, we rejoice at the very thought of you ruling upon your throne. Oh God, the earth is but your footstool. And your mighty right hand holds the scepter of your rule. And nothing happens on this earth apart from your sovereign will. And Lord, we do rejoice at the thought that you are bringing this world to an expected end. One that you have planned and purposed for your glory and for our joy. And so, Lord, we continue to look eagerly for that day when evil will be no more and our Lord Jesus Christ will come and rule and reign visibly, personally, and bodily upon his throne, even on the earth. And Lord, we want to thank you for the great favor that you have bestowed upon us because of our Lord Jesus and his blood shed upon the tree. O Lord, that you have sufficiently paid the debt of our sins and you have imputed to us the perfect righteous life of Jesus who fulfilled your entire law with every preceptive requirement that was in it. And Lord, that that righteousness is now credited to us so that we are even called holy and blameless before you in him. We thank you for this great privilege. And that, Lord, through means of this, you have cleansed us so completely that you now call us your temple where you have come to live and dwell inside of us. That, God, your very presence dwells in us by your Spirit. We praise you and we thank you for such a glorious salvation. And, Lord, we thank you for the the blessed fruit of the Spirit that we now experience, your righteousness and your peace and your joy that lives in our hearts. God, we're very grateful. Oh, Lord, as we have gathered this morning to look closely and intently at your word, I pray that you would give light to our eyes. Lord, that you would help us to see and learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And that, Father, you would encourage us and strengthen us in our faith by these things. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, 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 move a little bit closer to the understanding of your character and your nature and the great things and purposes that you have saved us for. Oh God, give us ears to hear, I pray. We thank you for the privilege that we have to freely gather in this place with all of your holy family. And we ask that you would be glorified among us because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Okay. So we're back in our study of 2 Thessalonians. And we are now moving to a, a bit of a transition even though this text that we're studying this morning is still connected to the former text that we've been looking at for the last eight or ten weeks. And, of course, the text we're looking at this morning is verses 13 and 14, which really, uh, as I said, marks kind of a transition, yet at the same time, it's a continuation of the earlier text where Paul was discussing the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him 
And then, of course, the rise of the man of lawlessness to power and the great deception that was to come upon the whole world through uh, Antichrist and his evil working. And as Paul brings us to this text now, he's going to present a contrast between those he described in the, in the verses of, of uh, 5 through 12, where he was discussing how the whole world falls away at the deception of wickedness under the Antichrist, and that they are those who perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. When he gets to verse 13, he presents this contrast and says, but you're, if you will, you're not like them. You're not the ones who perish and fall away, but instead you are. And, of course, he's going to describe the nature of those of us who have been saved. And uh, so, if you will, there is a bit of a transition, yet it's still connected to the former verses. I'm going to read this morning. Um, <clears throat> I'll go ahead and start back at verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll read through the end of the chapter so you can kind of get the whole context here. And, of course, there, back in verse 8, he's, he's talking about the Antichrist and the deception that will come. He says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. <clears throat> For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by His Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen? And so, if you will, uh, this also kind of brings, brings us to a, 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 a larger transition where there's a chapter break here, which um, is really appropriately placed. And Paul's going to go in, and you'll, you'll be interested to see the content of chapter 3. There's a lot of practical exhortations in that chapter uh, just for corporate church life, including the idea or the concept of church discipline. This is really one of the definitive places in, in the Pauline corpus where church discipline is dealt with and talked about. Um, but more than that, just uh, a lot of good practical exhortations for how we as Christians live corporately together in the church. So, if you will, that brings us to um, verse 13. And as I stated, Paul is making this transition. And there he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Even though there is a transition here in Paul's focus from the previous section, he nevertheless presents a powerful contrast 
between those whom God has chosen to save and those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Of course, I'm reading from the notes at the top of page 101. Paul now seeks to reassure the Thessalonians that they will not come under the judgment of God or be swept away by deception under the influence of the man of lawlessness, but rather they have been chosen by God from the beginning for salvation. Notice here Paul ascribes the surety of these things to God when he states, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, showing God to be the author of their salvation by his sovereign electing grace, because they are the objects of his love. You see, Paul doesn't talk about election when it comes to those who perish, because they haven't been elected by God. Instead, the contrast is they perish, they fall away. They are deceived by the Antichrist. And they are the ones who take pleasure in wickedness in contrast to those of us who are being saved by the sanctification by the Spirit. And if you will, this language in verses 13 and 14 describing our salvation is a huge contrast to those that he has described who are going to fall away in the deception under Antichrist. And if you will... Here it is in the black and white. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The difference between somebody who's been born again by the Spirit of God and who loves God, right, because they have been sovereignly elected by God for salvation. And if you will, that is in contrast to those who are in the world, who are swept away in the deception under Antichrist because they refuse to believe the truth. And because they refuse to love the truth, Paul says, okay? And so, if you will, there's this great contrast, having spent several weeks talking about that deception under Antichrist. Now we're looking at the glory of those of us who have been saved. And moreover, Paul has these uh, phenomenal expressions of our salvation and, and what it is. And he uses these salvific words to describe what has happened to those of us who have been chosen by God. And uh, it's interesting that he would point to election being the actual mark, or or if you will, the basis of, of what it is that we stand in as those who don't perish, as those who do believe the truth. And he ascribes, of course, in election that to God. He's ascribing our salvation to God. And this is why he says, we give thanks always to God for you, brethren. And then, of course, he calls us beloved by the Lord, showing that we are the objects of his love. Listen, God has freely chosen these Thessalonians who are beloved by the Lord, which he brings up again in verse 16. And for this, Paul says, we should always give thanks to God. And you see what he's doing? He's, he's, he's saying, you Thessalonians are not going to be swept away with those who perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, and with those who take pleasure in wickedness. Why? Because you've been chosen by God from the beginning, right? And to this we are thanking God. Why? Because that election is God's work. 
because the glory of that salvation is being ascribed to God and not to man. This is why Paul says we thank God. And in the course, he describes uh, the Thessalonians as being those who are beloved by God. See here that salvation belongs to the Lord, and man is not to receive the glory for it, nor for the wise choice he made in coming to it. But thanksgiving is always to be ascribed to God. I mean, we don't walk around patting Christians on the back, do we? Saying, oh, what a wise choice you made when you came to Christ. Aren't you so smart? <laughs> we don't talk like that, do we? How come? Because we ascribe the glory of salvation to God. And the reason why you are saved and they are not is because God has chosen you to be saved. That's a humbling thought. Isn't the old adage, but for the grace of God, there go I? Is it because you were so much smarter than your neighbor who is perishing in his sin that you're saved? Is it because, uh, because of your wise and discerning heart that you were able to understand and lay hold of the truth that you were separated by God because of your sin, and that Christ was the provision for that sin, and that you ought to believe the truth and so be saved? Was it because of some wisdom that was inherent in you? Are you wiser than your neighbor who has rejected Christ? No. What happened was God came along and sovereignly regenerated you by, your, by His Spirit. And he put his nature in you and he showed you the desperate need that you had for salvation and he revealed to you that Christ was the provision for that salvation. And he gave you the gift of faith which you employed to believe. That's what <coughs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. For by grace we have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Right? Right? Lest anyone should boast about how wise they are or smart they are, right? We don't boast in that. We boast in God's love for us, amen? And we do that in a very humble way because we realize how depraved and desperately in need of salvation we are, amen? And that's why you never see the scripture coming along and patting man on the back for being so wise and discerning. On the contrary, we were foolish. our foolish hearts were darkened. Amen? But God, who is rich in mercy, right, saved us and made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 5. Right? He came along and regenerated us. He quickened us from that dead state. It was like Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. God powerfully spoke with the gospel into our heart and life and raised us from our dead state, showing us the need for salvation. You see, salvation is a revelatory work that God does in our hearts and minds. He turns on the light of the gospel. He turns on the light of Christ. And that's how come you keep beating your head against the wall of that person you keep trying to witness to, and they just can't get it. For all the tea in China, they can't get it. So what do you do? Well, you go to praying. And when you go to praying for somebody's salvation, what are you praying for? You're praying for God to regenerate their heart. You're praying for God to turn on the light. And you and I both know, until God 
turns on the light, they ain't going to see. Amen? And when we think like that, and when we pray like that, we ascribe salvation to God. And that's what we mean when we say salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus says that he reveals himself to those whom he wills. Matthew eleven twenty seven. You want somebody to be saved, you bang on the door of heaven. Because you sure ain't going to convince them by earthly means. Amen? God certainly uses the gospel and he uses the word of God in order to call the elect out of darkness. Right? That's one of the means he uses. And he uses us to speak it and explain it and urge them and warn them and help to open their eyes and turn on the light by when we speak the word of God to them. Amen? But ultimately... Until God does that work of regeneration, nobody's going to be saved. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, remember that guy who knows the whole Bible? The teacher in all of Israel? And he comes to Jesus by night and Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. Right? You the greatest doctor of religion... In our day, of course, Nicodemus is scratching his head. Lord, how can I enter into my mother's womb again? Right? No light. Just yet, anyway. Jesus said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, unless you're born of water and spirit, right, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it is, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is what Paul says to us in verse 13 when he goes on to say, because God, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul explains why we should always give thanks to God. His reason? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Now listen, God hasn't just chosen you, but he's chosen you from the beginning. And listen, God hasn't just chosen you from the beginning, but he's chosen you from the beginning for salvation. He chose you to be saved. From the beginning. Understand? It's a lot of ideas in that little phrase there. Tremendous, glorious, wonderful, heavenly truths contained in those few words. Amen? Salvation is something that comes to individuals according to God's own sovereign will. For salvation's election, calling, and sanctification are wholly according to God's own purpose and grace... 2 Timothy 1.9, which he purposed to do from before the beginning of time. This is how scripture talks about our salvation. And you know, we wouldn't have otherwise known this unless God would have come along and revealed it to us and told it to us. 
Because, of course, in our life, we're just going along through life, right? Facing the difficulties of living in a fallen world. Facing the struggle of a guilty conscience for our sin. Facing broken relationships and all the fruit that comes from living like a sinner, right? And one day or one series of days or one series of months and years and lots of prayers from good grandmas and things like that, right? God, through the circumstances of our life... And by the word of the gospel, comes along and turns on the light and causes us to see, right? And quickens us from that dead state. You see, you were dead in transgressions and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved, right? And, and so, so, but when scripture talks about this happening, it says that this happened in the mind of God. Listen, before the beginning of time. Do you get that? God decided to save Juan Gonzalez from before the beginning of time. <laughs> what do you suppose will be Juan's destiny? <laughs> He's going to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God chose him from the beginning to be saved. That's why. His salvation rests firmly in the hands of God. Now that doesn't negate his responsibility to respond to the gospel, but those capacities God gave him in regeneration, which is the difference between him and the unbeliever, which you can't convince. Scripture speaks of our salvation as having been wrought in God before the beginning of time. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, there Paul says, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. When was it granted to us? From all eternity. What, what is that, that expression describing? Well, in other translations, that very expression is also translated from before time began. When we think about eternity in the past sense, we think about the fact that God has always been. There never was a time past where God did not exist. God is eternal. He has always been. He has always existed. And here's the thing. From all the way back, as far back in eternity as your mind can conceive or comprehend, all the way back there, God knows all the events of all the days of all of history from as far back in eternity past to as far in eternity future as there is. In fact, to use those kind of terms to even describe it doesn't achieve the purpose, right? Because eternity is infinitude. And listen, God knows everything from before the beginning. Do you understand? His knowledge, he's omniscient. His knowledge is complete of everything that will happen. Not only that, but it all happens because God has decreed that it should happen. So everything that happens in the course of creation, okay, has been purposed by God from before the beginning of time, okay? We call that foreordination. It's a theological term describing God's decree in eternity past, okay? Which also includes the salvations of individuals like Juan Gonzalez. 
So that at just the right time in Juan's life, the Lord came along and through many trials and toils and snares, brought him to a gracious salvation. Or in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, Paul writes there and he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now, what in the world is the Bible saying? God predestined us? Well, what does the, word, the English word predestined mean? It means to set one's destiny beforehand. Yay? That's exactly what it means. And this is exactly what God did for Juan in eternity past. He decided, I'm going to set my electing sovereign grace on Juan. And at the appointed time, I'm going to save him. And it will be from that point forward that he will serve me and he will love me and I will move his heart to walk in all my ways and to fear me. And I will bring him safely into my kingdom forever where he shall live with me and I shall dwell among him and we shall, he shall be my son and I shall be his God. That's what went on in the mind of God before time began concerning Juan Gonzalez. You understand? <clears throat> this is how Scripture describes our salvation. And it says there in uh, verse uh, 5 that this is according to the kind intention of his will. Now, did Juan do anything to earn such favor from God? No. Not only did he not earn God's favor, but he did what? He, he stuck his fist up in the face of God for many years. Right? And he said, I will not have you to rule over me, God. I'm going to do my own thing, which is what we do every time we sin. And that's why the Bible calls it grace. Because it's a favor that we didn't earn. It's a favor that we didn't merit. On the contrary, we were at enmity with God. Right? And yet God comes along and snatches Juan out of the fire. With a strong arm to save. Amen? And anybody who knows Juan knows he's saved, right? We just look, and what do we see? Sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Amen? We see that work of God being visibly displayed in the life of the elect. And this is how God is being glorified in the current time. Amen? And will also be glorified at the day that Christ is revealed when Juan puts his foot on the neck of his enemies. Standing at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's come in glory and blazing fire with his mighty angels. Amen. <clears throat> this is all according to the kind intention of God's will. Verse 6, listen, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's who Christians are. There are people to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Because you know what? We, ha we deserve hell fire Amen. and we get eternal joy and glory in the presence of God and all of that we get because of the kind intention of God's will in choosing to save us and coming with a mighty arm in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins and he saves us according to that power and he applies it to us 
by his spirit. This is all to the praise of the glory of God's grace. That's why when Christians get together, what do they do? They worship and they praise and they sing. Just like what's going on in heaven in the very presence of God physically in that place. Amen? If such words could be used to describe it. Right? And of course there, Paul goes on to say, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And of course the beloved there is referring to Jesus himself. We are in Christ and he is in us. Amen? Or in Romans 8, 29 through 30, the golden chain of salvation. There, uh, Paul writes and he says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And just so you don't get the mistaken idea that God doesn't choose individuals for salvation, we have Romans eight twenty nine and 30, which is very particular about individuals. You see, it's saying, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Right? Do you remember how I illustrated the calling to you? Here's how it goes, like this. Juan. <laughs> this is the biblical picture of calling, okay? It's, it's really a simple concept, and we kind of miss it. But here's what's involved. When I call out Juan's name, me, the caller, I have a very specific individual in mind. And not only that, but when I call him, I call him by name. And of course, if I'm God, and he's in his sin... And when I give that gospel call, I regenerate his soul so that he understands his need for salvation. And I show him that Christ is the provision. And I command him to repent in that gospel. You know how Juan responds, right? He responds in the affirmative. We call it conversion, or if you will, faith and repentance. But until that time that God bestows that gift of faith upon him, he has not faith to believe. Because faith is a gift of God. And when you get it, you employ it. Because in getting that gift, you see your great need to have it and use it. Amen? So, if you will, Paul here says that these Thessalonians have been chosen by God from the beginning for salvation. And he makes this the distinguishing basis that, that, it, that puts them in contrast to those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. But you see, these Thessalonians are being saved through the sanctification of the Spirit and by faith in the truth. You see, these aren't the ones who don't believe the truth. These are the ones who have faith in the truth. And as I was telling you before, that, that, that faith is a gift that comes from God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is why Paul states that their salvation is a result of God's electing love, which he says happened from the beginning. Paul then describes two of the means of God's salvation when he says, through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Salvation is frequently spoken of as happening through the course of time. Now here's this thing. When you start trying to think deeply about the doctrine of salvation, you have to, you have to recognize something, that 
in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, specifically in the New Testament, God is describing salvation in many different contexts and through the writing of many different writers and two recipients in those letters who are facing many different kinds of circumstances in their life. The result is the way that Christian salvation gets expressed in the various contexts of Scripture is very different. But that doesn't change the nature of what salvation is and how it happens. So if you will, you get these different semantical ideas and concepts in different contexts of Scripture which describe what salvation is, and sometimes that causes us confusion, okay? So that's why, if you will, in a systematic study of the doctrine of salvation where we gather together what the whole Bible has to say about the doctrine of salvation, and we analyze all those passages in their context for that meaning, and then we bring that together in a, in a synergy to try and understand what salvation is, what its nature is, and how it happens, and those kinds of things. We come to an under, a logical understanding of what it is, even though it's expressed in all these different ways. Okay? With that as a background, let me read this statement to you. Salvation is frequently spoken of as happening through the course of time, past, present, and future, and depending on certain conditions, such as God's election. And then I give you a whole list of scriptures there that talk about God's election. And of course, election in this context is, is unto salvation. Okay, There's different kinds of election in the Bible. For example, in the Old Testament, God elected Israel, right? For things, God elected certain people to carry out certain tasks. God elected certain kings to be to be king. He, you know, he elected certain prophets. You know, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. <laughs> Jeremiah was elected to be a prophet to the nations by God before he was born. Right, and so if you will, uh, but election in this context, we're talking about election unto salvation. There's a list of scriptures there that you can look up. But then also, uh, salvation is spoken of as predestination. And then there are some scriptures there. Or it's also spoken of as a calling, a calling from God. Or it's also uh, spoken of in terms of man's response. And so we may, we may read and the scripture says, well, you know, we're saved because we've been elected. Or we're saved because we've been predestined. Or we're saved because we've been called by God. Right? But at the same time, it will talk about how we're saved by what? By faith in the truth. By believing the, the gospel that we heard. Right? Or in these various different ways. Man's response of repentance. Right? Uh, up. Be baptized. Right? For the forgiveness of your sins. And repent. Right? Repent and wash your sins away, Paul says. Or uh, somebody says there in Acts. I think it's Paul. But the point is, is, is that uh, man's response is often in view when speaking about salvation as repentance or of uh, faith. And of course, I'm giving you scriptures there near the bottom of 101 for each one of these. Or then also perseverance. Listen, salvation is talked about those who possess it are the ones who persevere till the end and so be saved. Right? Perseverance is one of those marks of true saving faith. Listen, every person who's ever saved will persevere to the end. That is a mark of true saving faith, right? Persevere in what? Persevere in faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for his righteousness alone, right? 
but we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen? In Scripture, Christians are seen as having been saved, past tense, and I give you a list of Scriptures for that, now being saved, present tense, which we call sanctification, there's a list of Scriptures for that, and will be saved, future tense, which we call glorification, and there's a list of Scriptures there for that. So what I'm saying is, in different contexts of scriptures, in, of scripture, uh, salvation is spoken of in all these different ways and with all these different terms. Okay, and it has a past tense, and it has a present tense, and it has a future tense. And you have to discern what's in the context of that wording in order to understand how the writer is addressing the understanding or the concept of salvation. Sometimes it's spoken of in a past tense: "You were saved," right? By grace you have been saved, right? Uh, or at times it, it's uh, referring to us being saved in the present tense. It'll talk about those of us who are being saved. We're in the process of being saved. If you will, the ongoing process of sanctification is the process of being saved in the course of time. And of course, every person who was saved in the past is currently being saved in the process of sanctification. And then also salvation is talked of in a future tense, and there it's, it's typically using the words glorification. Or when Paul says something like, so that you will gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about that ultimate day when we're going to partake in the very glory of Christ, visibly and physically. And so our salvation in that sense is spoken of in a future tense, right? And so we have to understand these things about salvation, that in the different contexts of Scripture, it's spoken about in different ways. So, nevertheless, when we are talking about the doctrine of election, okay, this is something where we kind of have to step out of our little comfort zone here and look at things from God's perspective, who is not bound by time, who is in eternity, and who was in eternity forever before he created the world, right? And then uh, along came uh, the, the appointed time, and God said, guess what? I'm going to create time. And in time, I'm going to create matter. And in matter, I'm going to create a heavens and an earth and a man and beasts and birds and bees and trees and clouds and mountains and streams and valleys and oceans, right? And then I'm going to work a great, massive, unbelievable saga of redemption throughout the courses of the age of the history of mankind. And I'm going to call out of a fallen world of sin and death a people to the praise of the glory of my grace, which is what we see happening in the course of history. And it's all headed for this great end that is in view here in Paul's writing. Therefore, when Paul says that salvation happens through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth, he means to say that these are both ways and means that God uses to save us. They are not the, the exclusive way or means, nor do they work exclusively apart from each other, but work together to save us. It is sanctification of the Spirit of God, which in this text is the process of being conformed into the likeness of Christ progressively over time, and faith in the truth 
which is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 9, that is the conduit or vehicle which lays hold of the righteousness of Christ for us by which we are saved. Listen, when God gives you faith and you employ faith, what that faith does is it lays hold of Christ's righteousness. That's why the scripture says um, that God justifies in Romans 3, right? All of those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely as a gift by his grace to all those who believe. Right? And when you trust Christ for that righteousness and that salvation, it's that trust, it's that faith which knows what Christ has done, agrees that it is what you need, and entrusts itself and lays hold of Christ for that righteousness before God. Amen? It's abandoning one's own righteousness and laying hold of Christ's righteousness. Because all of our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God, which has earned and merited for us nothing but God's wrath. Okay? But God has put forth Christ as a sacrifice of propitiation. God has put forth Christ to cover over our sins and to be a payment for our sins. And we can lay hold of that by faith. And so faith, if you will, is the vehicle by which we lay hold of the righteousness of God that is in Christ. Okay? And that's why Paul says we're saved by faith in the truth. Right? Or at the same time, he can say, we're saved by the sanctification of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit has come along and regenerated us and opened our eyes and given us the capacities of faith and granted us the very repentance from our sins. For God is at work in us both to will and to do according to his good purpose. Amen? Philippians 2.13. And he's giving us all of this grace and power by which we are being saved. And through this process of sanctification, our salvation is being realized more and more as the days go by. Amen? Are you a little closer to heaven than you were when you first believed? Are you a little closer to Jesus? Are you a lot closer to Jesus? I don't know about you, but I am. And it's through many trials and toils and snares that we've come thus far. Amen? And yet the Lord has had a strong grip on us and brought us all along the way. And he's used every single thing that's come into our life, good or bad. Wise choices, foolish choices. Wind and waves, right? Afflictions and trials and sufferings and sorrows. Joys and happiness and grace and blessings, right? And all those things, God is causing all those things to work together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, which is that he chose you for salvation from the beginning. Amen? And it's all going to end one day in eternal enjoyment before God's throne, where we shall rejoice forever and ever, world without end. And there will be no more to harm there on all God's holy mountain. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Bring it. Bring it, Lord. Come quickly. Amen? We're hurting down here. Those who are saved by faith are also sanctified by the Spirit. 
And these two ways and means are one way Paul has chosen to describe our salvation. Peter describes salvation in a similar way. He writes in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. And you see, here's two little verses of Scripture, which again are jam-packed full of all these words and ways and means that describe our salvation. You know, our salvation means we're what? Aliens. We're aliens and strangers, right? There's this whole idea or concept of Christians being aliens and strangers that's being expressed here, right? Or he says that it's a, a chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, right? So when Paul says, those whom God foreknew, Here's what he's talking about. That in eternity past, God decided to set his love on specific individuals. That's what the word foreknowledge means. Look up the word foreknowledge in a word study. You'd be amazed what you find out there. Really, the word know is really more of an intimate love that God is setting on somebody from before the beginning of time. That foreknowledge is God deciding to set his love on somebody. That word no is frequently translated uh, in other translations of the Bible other than the NASB uh, as, um, as uh, a love. Or God will say things like uh, to the nation of Israel, uh, you alone have I known of all the nations of the earth. Right? Well, what does that mean? Does that mean God doesn't know any of the other nations? No, that's not what it means. It means that it's Israel that he's chosen to set his intimate love on. They're the object of his calling, amen, which is irrevocable, which, by the way, is going to wind up in their salvation, too. Amen? Amen. God's going to save Israel, the ethnic nation of Israel, because there's going to come a day when he's going to regenerate, pow, the whole nation all at once. That's what Paul's describing in Romans 11, okay? Sorry, I'm not going to chase that rabbit. But here's Peter, and he's talking about all these different aspects of salvation, right? By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So when he discusses how salvation uh, relates to the Spirit of God, he says we're being sanctified, right? And then how does it relate to Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Lord. Amen? Amen? And so the Lord has shown up on the scene, and he's given some high and holy commandments. And you know what our response is? obedience. And that's why Peter says that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And here's another little picture of salvation. Those who've been sprinkled with the blood of the high priest. Amen. What a glorious cleansing that is. See then that salvation is expressed in many different ways in different contexts of scripture. But nevertheless, is the great reason that God has created mankind upon the earth and allowed people to fall into sin and death, that he might work his great plan of redemption upon his elect people to the praise of the glory of his grace. God the Father is the author of salvation, and Jesus is the Savior who carried it out, and he applies it to us by means of his Spirit in regeneration. And in these, we see that salvation belongs to the Lord, and that it rests wholly on the work of God. 
You see, those are things that God does. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and it's by the sanctification of the Spirit, right? And it's obedience to Jesus who is leading and guiding our great shepherd, amen? And all of those things are work and things that God does to save us, amen? And again, it doesn't nullify our responsibility to follow him and to walk in all his ways and to fear him and to love him. Amen? And to worship Him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. That's the response that He commands of us. In fact, in all the law, that's the great commandment. Amen? Therefore, Paul is moved to thanksgiving for these Thessalonians. We should always give thanks to God. His reason? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. See here a very great and precious promise from God of which we can gain a certain assurance that we shall persevere in our faith unto a final salvation. And even if an antichrist be empowered to deceive the whole world, God's elect shall never perish with the unbelievers. For God has chosen them from the beginning for salvation and called us out of the darkness of sin and deception into the marvelous light of salvation. And this he has done by means of sanctification by his spirit and the gift of faith in the truth. Amen? Of the surety of our salvation, John Calvin comments on these verses. He writes, For he does not merely exempt from fear a few individuals, who had been led to Christ immediately on the commencement of the gospel. But this consolation belongs to all the elect of God without exception. When, therefore, he says from the beginning, he means that there is no danger, lest their salvation, which is founded on God's eternal election, should be overthrown. Whatever tumultuous changes may occur. However Satan may mix and confound all things in the world, your salvation, notwithstanding, has been placed on a footing of safety prior to the creation of the world. Here, therefore, is the true port of safety, that God, who elected us of old, will deliver us from all the evils that threaten us. For we are elected to salvation. We shall, therefore, be safe from destruction. Amen? What encouraging words from a wise brother. Amen? I love digging in those commentaries. <laughs> There's all kinds of nuggets in there. It is for this salvation of our souls that Paul says is the reason we were called by God. It was for this he called you through our gospel. Notice here that it is the means of the gospel that we are called by God and unto him. Yet another expression of salvation and its means. Look what Paul says. We were called through the gospel, right? It was for this he called you through our gospel, right? Yet another expression of what has taken place. It is through the agency and working of the gospel that God calls sinners to be saved. Even though we may have been elected by God from the beginning, yet there comes an appointed time for us to believe and be saved as we respond to God's calling us through the gospel. It is very helpful to think of salvation in terms of the order in which it happens. 
Although there is some controversy on exactly what parts of it happen in which order, the discussion is called the Ordo Salutis, meaning the order of salvation. Wayne Grudem presents a brief but helpful discussion of this in his systematic theology in the beginning of chapter 32. See the attachment, the Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation, which is this. And so that I can send you packing with your mind uh, firmly engaged in these ideas, I, I just wanted to point this out to you, that in, in, the, in the study of the doctrine of salvation, there is some controversy about how things happen in what order, if you will. Okay, so when we go and we gather up all the scriptures that talk about salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we pull them all together and we classify them and we categorize them and we study them and we try to understand what salvation is, what its nature is, how it happens, and, and so on and so forth, right? We come to find out that there are words that speak about how things happen in a certain order, okay? That discussion is called in, in Latin the Ordo Salutis, right, which simply means the order of salvation. This is what a little section that Wayne Grudem wrote in chapter 32. He says, The act of election is, of course, not strictly speaking part of the application of salvation to us since it came before Christ earned our salvation when he died on the cross. But we treat election at this point because it is chronologically the beginning of God's dealing with us in a gracious way. Therefore, it is rightly thought of as the first step in the process of God's bringing salvation to us individually. Other steps in God's work of applying salvation to our lives include our hearing the gospel call, or being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, or responding in faith and repentance, or forgiving us and giving us membership in his family, as well as granting us growth in the Christian life and keeping us faithful to himself throughout life. At the end of our life, we die and go into his presence. Then when Christ returns, we receive resurrection bodies and the process of acquiring salvation is complete. Various theologians have given specific terms to a number of these events and have often listed them in a specific order in which they believe that they occur in our lives. Such a list of events in which God applies salvation to us is called the order of salvation and is sometimes referred to by a Latin phrase, ordo salutis, which simply means order of salvation. Before discussing any of these elements in the application of salvation to our lives, we can give a complete list here of the elements that will be treated in the following chapters. And so, if you will, he gives his rendering of the order of salvation. And there it is, numbers 1 through 10. First is God's election. God's choice of people to be saved. So in the course of how these things play out, okay, he said one comes before two and two comes before three and three comes before four, right? Election is first. Then the gospel call, the proclamation of the message of the gospel. Then regeneration, being born again. Then conversion, faith and repentance. Then justification, right legal standing before God. Then adoption, membership in God's family. Then sanctification, right conduct of life. And number eight, perseverance, remaining a Christian. And number nine, death, going to be with the Lord. And number 10, glorification, receiving a resurrection body. We should note here that items two through six are all part of seven and are involved in becoming a Christian. 
Number seven and eight work themselves out in this life. Number nine occurs at the end of this life. And number 10 occurs when Christ returns. So we got your mind kind of chewing on that, but I want to point this out. In these two little verses that we looked at this morning, verse 13 and 14, Paul mentions five of those different parts of the order of salvation when he's describing our salvation. Very interesting to consider how those things play out in the course of our lives. Amen? Especially when Paul is talking about God electing us from the beginning. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we see these high things that are written in your word. And Lord, at times they are difficult for us to ascend to and to see things from that place where you are in heaven outside of time. And Lord, I pray for anyone who might be struggling to understand this concept of sovereign grace, sovereign election, that Lord, you would open their eyes to see what you have said in your word concerning our salvation and its origin. I pray, Father, that uh, the ensuing struggle would be focused on Scripture for answers. Because, Lord, you have spoken to us comprehensively about these things, and you've made it very clear uh, how you have wrought our salvation, when you have wrought our salvation, how it plays out and how it's applied to us. And you've said so many things to encourage us in our faith. And so, God, I pray that we would, number one, give you the glory for our salvation. And number two, rest firmly assured, Father, that because you have given us of your spirit, that you are going to see us through to the end and we're going to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. And with that, we ask, come quickly, Lord. We look to you with great hope and eager expectation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.